Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Person Show on Blog Talk Radio. We are your enthusiastic and faithful Catholic apostolate. For more information about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. To call in tonight with your comment or question, dial 515-602-9655. The number, again, is 515-602-9655. Once again, to the Monday edition of the Four Persons Podcast, the authentic Catholic defenders of the deeper truth of our sacred faith. Accept no imitations. Tonight, we issued a challenge to some of the detractors of our faith, and uh, remains to be seen well whether some will take up the challenge or not. They probably won't. They usually don't. Because tonight we're going to be talking about one of the pillars of Protestantism, a belief that that Protestants say they believe in, but they have a difficult time defending. And there's certainly absolutely no biblical evidence whatsoever for this crazy, insane doctrine of Luther the doctrine of sola fide, that is, salvation by faith alone. The Bible tells us that there are three cardinal virtues, not one. They are faith, yes, but also hope and love. Love, says the sacred book, not faith, is the greatest of the three. Now, why would that be? If salvation is of faith alone, how can Paul say that love is greater? How could Paul and James both say that love covers a multitude of sins? If salvation is only a faith, how could Jesus say of Mary Magdalene that her sins were forgiven because of her great love? Am I suggesting that one could be saved without faith? Far from it. I also affirm that genuine love is impossible without faith. Yet, just as surely, genuine faith is impossible without love and genuine love is impossible without sacrifice and that sacrifice sometimes hurts five times in the gospels jesus is recorded as saying that only the disciple who will deny his own self and take up his own cross can be worthy of him the savior luke 9:23 is one and he was saying to them all If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, how are people able to claim Christ and deny a verse like that? Or even more, this one, Matthew 3. This is John the Baptist speaking. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Try as you might, you cannot reconcile these verses with the doctrine of faith alone or once saved, always saved. However, the real clincher is the words of Jesus himself, who never once taught that simple faith was enough to be saved. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 46 is just about as clear as it gets on this matter. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another as a sheep separates the sheep as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he replaced the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see thee hungry and feed thee, or thirsty and give thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger and welcome thee, or naked and clothe thee? And when do we see thee sick or in prison and visit thee? And the king will answer to them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to thee? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Romans chapter 2 is just as clear. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are. When you judge another for in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, that when you judge those who do such things yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will render unto every man according to his works. To those 
who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God chose no partiality. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. These texts are starkly, even frighteningly clear. And the same is true with virtually all of the truths of our sacred faith. So what is next for us? Our mission is clear. Convert the unbeliever. Catechize the convert. Motivate the catechized. Empower the motivated. Change the world for Jesus. To do so requires love, and it requires genuineness. We must reach the crushed and the broken where they are, because where they are is where we once were. In the battle of love, only the wounded soldiers can serve. And with that, let me bring on my guest host tonight, Lewis, how you doing tonight? I'm doing good, brother. It's a pleasure to be here, and um, I have a lot to contribute. And um, I also want to point out how an average Protestant that believes in Solified might respond to that or will respond to that, actually. Um, but other than that, um, I'm sorry. So you... You said that solified is in, um, a pillar of the Protestant faith. Well, kind of going back to what we were talking about in our previous radio host, um, it's hard to make any general statements anymore because Protestants, it's always, they are very subjective. They are always changing. We can say that was one of the original pillars of Protestantism, but it's not, you know, broadly accepted as it once was, you know, before. Because, again, Protestants have a habit of all interpreting Scripture in different ways, um, which is kind of shows you that it's not a religion you should be a part of because it doesn't teach truth with objectivity, and regardless of what denomination you belong to in Protestantism. But um, another thing that I want to add is Protestants that do defend... Um, the do the sign sola scriptura, I mean, not sola scriptura, sola fide, sola faith, I'm sorry. They'll try to say, for example, every example you gave, um, um, for example, you gave the, the, the famous example of Jesus um, casting away those who did not serve him through others. They'll say that if they were saved and they had faith, then those works that you just demonstrated in, in that verse are a product of that. And that's the number one um, verse they like to turn to. Faith um, works is a product of faith. But um, it doesn't seem like they understand that verse very well. Because if you look at the book of James, and as we all know, Luther had a very strong hatred of that book. He saw it as being like a piece of filth in Scripture. And he quoted and said that he, he wishes that he can you know, take that, that verse and throw it into a cleansing fire. 
So, I mean, that strongly shows you, you know, how powerful the book of James is in, you know, refuting saved by faith alone. And again, the average Protestants will say, for example, James 2.20, that it's saying, oh, um, the justification is merely just demonstrating, um, works are just demonstrating you are already justified. But if you actually read the verse um, and you go on, it shows you that is a lie, actually. Because if the the verse plainly says um, in James twenty one um, two twenty one pardon, the faith is perfected by works. That's destroying the whole Protestant logic that um, works are simply just a a a, a product of faith alone. It, the verse is telling you that they're just more than only that. They they complete your faith. And how if if works were simply a product of faith, you know, and they didn't contribute, how would works complete faith then? Is is verse twenty one of John lying to us then? No. If you go on to read it says it even more clear, faith without works is dead. <laughs> if I if I can keep going it only becomes more clear when it says in the book of James, what was I going to say? You're so right, uh, Lewis. That we are saved by faith and not by faith. We are saved by works and not by faith alone. So again, um, that's probably the even stronger part of James, that it distinguishes faith and works from each other. It doesn't just say um, that works lead to faith and faith that leads to work. It says that you need both to be saved. So if if faith alone just automatically produce works, verses like these wouldn't exist. And again, um, Protestants that hold to the the heretical doctrine of you know solified, they have nothing but their assumptions. But if you actually look at church history, how the early Christians taught you know scripture this idea of saved by faith alone would be preposterous for them. I'm sorry for cutting you off. No, no, no problem. Um, yeah. And the, the other argument that I would make about James is he makes it, he, he makes it very, very clear. You know, there's two Greek words and the two Greek words are pistis and pasteos uh, that are both translated to the English faith or belief. And uh, that's that's kind of where they, they run into trouble is because they the two as if they are the same thing. But James makes the distinction between the two. He said, you believe God is one, the demons believe, and they tremble. But their faith is dead faith. So this is the difference. Pistis is the word means to assent to something, to assent to something as being true. Uh, and and I mean ascending that ascending to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord is not a very difficult thing to do, but the word pisteos on the other hand is active. It's it's an active uh, verb and it means to believe in, to trust in, to lean on. There is an action involved. It's it's actionable faith, and that is the faith that James is talking about. I want to skip to another book of the Bible that, that, that Protestants like to throw at us, 
And it's interesting because it's three verses in particular, but they like to chop off the last verse uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, but they also butcher the grammatical structure of the sentence. Okay, Lewis, I'm gonna I'm gonna read you this sentence, and I want you to digest this sentence just from a grammatical standpoint. Okay, so. Before I read this sentence, if I were to say, yesterday I was flying a kite, and it got stuck in a tree, what is it referring to? The kite. It's referring to the kite. Is it referring to stuck or getting stuck? No, it's referring to the kite. It refers, the pronoun it refers to the noun, which is the subject of the sentence. Not the action, right? It would be right. absurd to say that it refers to the action, right? Right. And yet that's exactly what they do here. It's exactly what they do here. Let me read the two verses. This is from Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not because of work lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now let's go back to verse 8. And this is a curious thing. that they, they As absurd as the example was that I gave you, it is exactly what they do. Because if you repeat this verse back to one of these Protestant defenders of sola fide, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, there's the pronoun, is not of your own doing. It, pronoun, is the gift of God. So what is the gift of God? Well, they say, well, salvation. So saved, the action, the verb, is what it is referring to, right? That's like saying yes. it is referring to stuck with regards to the kite. No. The subject of the sentence, the subject of the sentence is what you are saved by, grace, for by grace you have been saved, it is the gift of God, it being grace. This verse does not say that salvation is a free gift of God. It says that grace is the free gift of God. Now, what is the purpose of that grace? For we are his work, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is not of our own doing. It is of grace. So we have no reason to boast. We have been saved by grace. What is the purpose of that grace? So the source of our salvation is grace. The means by which we receive that grace is faith. But the purpose of that grace is what? The good works which have been prepared for us to do. So if grace is, if good works are the purpose of that grace and we receive the grace and we refuse to do the good works, isn't it logical that God would hold us accountable for that? It is extremely logical. 
Yet, why can't they see that? Why is that so difficult for them to see, for them to understand it's a that? Tradition, um, it's because of their own traditions. They attack us and say, for example, the things that we believe in are tradition. But when they say that, they mean the traditions of man. But in reality, it's actually the complete opposite. Because um, most of them that believe in this is because they were taught and raised and kind of brainwashed into thinking that from a very young age. And it's also part of what we call easy beliefism. It's very, it's very convenient to believe that, hey, once you have faith, you don't have to put any more effort. You don't have to, you know, strive to be a servant of God because, you know, God would just do that magically with a snap of a finger. It, it's, it's something that, um, that's very convenient for, to believe. And people typically like things easy. People don't want to, you know, fight for for things, especially right. in this generation. Do, do you have your Bible in That's front of you? So, I have my phone, which you know, acts, which has a Bible in it. But um, mm-hmm. yes. All right, I'm going to give you a verse to to. If you can't look it up, just tell me, and I'll read it from here. I can I can look it up. Okay. What I want you to do is. Just in case anyone thinks that I'm misreading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, that I'm misinterpreting them, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. Oh, Philippians, okay, I thought you were telling me, okay, Philippians chapter 2, two. and I want you yeah. to read verses 11 to 13, no, 11, uh, 10 to 13. I will be using the Dewey Rames. Is that okay with you? Mm-hmm. That, in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more now in my absence, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. For it is God who has worked in you, both to will and accomplish according to his will. Wow. That doesn't sound like once saved, always saved to me. No, it It, doesn't. And again, it even says, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get more clearer than that at all. So, so let me ask you just a simple rhetorical question. Uh, if salvation was easy and it only required faith and I can't lose it, what would there be for me to fear? <laughs> what would be the cause of the trembling? They'll try to back up and say, oh, um, God can still punish you even if you're saved, but he just won't take away your salvation. But let's say you keep reading Scripture. Let's say we cut to my favorite verse that probably, not not probably, it completely destroys one saved, always saved, and saved by faith alone. Hebrews 6, 4, 6. May I read that? Mm-hmm. For it is impossible for those who were once, keyword here is once illuminated, tasted, past tense, have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, have moreover tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, 
and are fallen away, to be renewed again, to penance, crucifying again to themselves the Son of God and making him a mockery. This verse completely destroys once saved, always saved. And like it says it in every single line possible. Um, my friend John, it literally says, for it is impossible for those who were once illuminated. What do you think that means? Yeah, those who were once saved. <laughs> illuminated, those who, who knew who knew Christ. And again, right. someone that isn't, yeah, someone that's saved can only know Christ. If, if you don't know Christ, you're not saved. Who have tasted also the heavenly gift. Again, that is definitely a direct illusion to salvation. If you, if you, if you have tasted the heavenly gift, you know Christ. And this is the third part that's the strongest of all. We're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. How can an unsaved person partake in the Holy Spirit? It's impossible. And have moreover tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world and are fallen away. Fallen away. Again, it's talking about people who were partakers of the Holy Ghost and are fallen away. How it's to be renewed again to penance. And again, it says the word again, meaning they were renewed before. Yeah. So this you, you want another proof text that prove that emphasizes yes. what you just what you just said? Yes. Exact same message, but from a different book. This is from Second Peter, the second chapter of Second Peter, starting with verse twenty. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the word through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit and a sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. Pope is saying it right there. So... You gave a proof text from Hebrews. I gave a proof text from Second Peter that both prove that it is possible to have salvation and lose it. Now, let's talk about this. I want to talk about this in depth because I had a debate years ago with a person who said that it's absurd to say that you've been saved your whole life, that God has been with you your whole life, and that just before you die, you accidentally fall into a state of mortal sin and you lose your salvation. Let's be clear, folks. Anyone who's listening to this, and by, by the way, if you're listening and you'd like to call in and comment or question, the number is 515-602-9655. Again, 515-602-9655. Our chat room is also open if you'd like to comment or question that way. Now, Lewis, is it possible to accidentally fall into a mortal sin? I would say no, since even small sin, they're required for you to do them consciously for them to be considered a sin. So, no, it's not impossible to accidentally fall into a mortal sin. A, a mortal sin, there has to be three things present for a sin to be mortal. One, it has to be a very grave sin. Murder, adultery, uh, 
Rape. Fornication. Rape. Deliberately missing mass is a mortal sin. Okay? Yes, so it the is. First thing, the first thing is that it is a grave sin. The second thing is that it is done with full knowledge and deliberate consent. So a person cannot accidentally fall into a mortal sin. It's impossible. By its nature, it's something that's done deliberately with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Now, here's the clincher. Even a person who commits a mortal sin, if they repent and turn away from it, and Catholics would say by the sacrament of confession, but if they but if they turn away from that, and even if they don't, if a person doesn't have the opportunity to go to confession, they can make a perfect act of contrition, uh, and and a mortal sin can be forgiven. Now, are you going to try to tell me that a person knowledge and deliberate consent can commit a mortal sin, say murder, okay, and that person refuses to repent of that sin, refuses to turn away from that sin, and Jesus has to let them into heaven anyway because they said a prayer 20 years ago? That's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to even suggest something like that. It's God, easy believism. Right. God's mercy must be reconciled with his justice. It is impossible for a, a just God to show mercy to a person who refuses that mercy. And by refusing that mercy, I mean that refuses to repent of the sin. You can't commit a mortal sin, refuse to repent of that mortal sin, and and expect to be forgiven. It's just it's impossible. It it I'm, I don't think it was too strong a word when I said it's blasphemy. Am am I right, Lewis? It's super blasphemy. So it's not a strong. It's not a weak. Uh, it's not a strong word. It's the accurate word, my friend. People need to understand God cannot act against his justice. He cannot. He cannot. All right? So there are two ways to face God's justice. You can face his full, uh, unmeasured, and complete and total justice, or you can seek his mercy. Okay? And that's kind of a a, a a covenant thing here, and and this is where we're going to go into this is where we're going to go on to the next argument. It's a covenant. It's an agreement, and the agreement states that God extends His mercy to those who seek it by repentance of their sin. So, Lewis, what would you say to this argument that we hear that well, you Catholics are making an argument against the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. I know you've probably heard that argument, right? I've heard it a few times, and it's not that we're making an argument against the sufficiency of the of Christ on the blood of the cross. Is that we're looking at everything 
that came with the cross. Because Jesus said many things, um, you know, with the sacrifice, like the Eucharist. He said those who eat, they often just look, for example, Protestants that believe in soul of faith. Um, they they look at John, I believe, 3.16, you know, by faith they are saved um, and along those lines, but they ignore the other verses. For example, when Christ um, breaks the bread and says, this is my body and blood, those who drink my who drink my blood and eat my body will have eternal life. Those who repent and are baptized will have eternal life. They ignore all the other things Christ said are needed for salvation. So, um, and these things are needed to accept the cross. It is not just simply faith that, that you know, the Christ makes a requirement to accept his death and resurrection on the cross. It's also repentance. It's also um, the Eucharist. And speaking of repentance, Christ made it clear that um, one of the ways we repent is through confession. So these are how the sacraments play a role in accepting the cross. Um, Protestants, again, they're not fully wrong when they say, you know, Christ did it on the cross, but they're wrong on how you accept that cross. And that's what puts them into moral sin. They think it's just, you know, like how you just said, you, they saying um, they accepting Christ 20 years ago uh, in a birthday party or in a, in a church, and they think that's it, and that's not what Scripture teaches. Right. What what they're doing here, Lewis, is they're they're committing what's known as the equivocation fallacy, and it's and it's very very clever if you if you're not really paying attention. You can fall for an argument like this because what, what they're doing is they're taking a word that can be can that can be interpreted or translated in a number of different ways, and they're picking a specific um, definition of the word and applying it to all of the circumstances in which the word occurs, ignoring the context. And, and what they're doing here, they're doing this with the word sufficiency. And they and they do the same thing with the sola scriptura argument. They say that everything that's in the Bible uh, is is totally sufficient for every you know for every good work and everything that we need to know about salvation. Well, okay, you can make that argument. And about just in general any doctrine, if you actually look at what Scripture actually teaches you, it teaches you not everything that Christ said made it into the Bible. And we know for a fact that anything that comes out of the mouth of Christ that is used for teaching can be made into doctrine. Right. But even if you even bought if the argument, even if you bought the argument that the Bible is material is materially sufficient, that everything that's that needed for salvation is contained in the Bible, that doesn't mean that it's practically sufficient. That doesn't mean that everything that's in the Bible can be extracted, explained, interpreted by our own effort, and that everything that's in the Bible can be extracted and exercised only by using the Bible. For instance, as you pointed out, the Bible says you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Well, that's in the Bible, but you can't do it from the Bible. You have to go to a church to do that. So it's materially sufficient in that respect, but it's not practically sufficient so let me ask you something what's a what's a good mid-range car that you that that you like just pick a car that you like a car uh honda crv honda crv okay how much does a honda crv cost 
New, probably twenty grand. Twenty grand. Okay. So let's say right now I have twenty thousand dollars in my bank account. Okay, and I go to the Honda dealer and I say, I want that Honda CRV right there. Oh, okay. Well, do you have enough money? Yeah, I got twenty thousand. Okay. All right. Well, give me the car. What do you mean? Well, give me the car. I've got twenty thousand dollars. Okay. But you have to give me the twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> okay. That's the difference between material sufficiency and practical sufficiency. Okay, so the issue is that Jesus' death on the cross was materially sufficient. No Catholic would argue that there were enough graces merited by Jesus' death on the cross to provide for the salvation of every man, woman, and child that had ever existed up to that time, was alive at that time, or would ever exist until the end of time. No Catholic would dispute the point. The question is that the graces are available is one thing, that the graces are applied to me is another thing altogether. This is the difference between practical sufficiency and uh, material sufficiency. So Protestants want to argue that they're the same thing, that material sufficiency and practical sufficiency are the same thing and that there is nothing lacking in the sufferings of Christ. But all, all I have to do is Say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in what he did on the cross, and that's it, right? That's not what Paul says. Right. That's not what Paul says. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 24, Paul says, now listen to this. Listen very carefully to what he says here. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings, your sake, and in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the divine office, which was given to me to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to his saints. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, let's start with the fact that Paul is now stating that his sufferings, Paul's, have value to me. That is an explicitly Catholic belief right there. You will not yes, get any Protestant you will not get any Protestant to sign off sign off on that belief. And yet it is right there. The Protestant will tell you emphatically it's only Christ's sufferings that had any value. My sufferings have no value whatsoever. Paul right here is saying different, okay? And then he says, I fill up in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In other words, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, that is the church. Lewis, think about what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that he can suffer for the benefit of the church in a way that is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So Paul's sufferings have a value that are that is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. These are not my words. These are Paul's words. 
Yeah, so once you understand what what he means, uh, for example, he's saying that um, he can be saying, um, I agree with you. And he's saying things like, for um, for example, that, um, you know, he means it in many ways, for example, like um, him using himself as an example of how Christians are to be, which is, again, as you said, is an extremely extremely Catholic thing. Protestants think, for the most part, that um, if you look to a saint as an example of a servant of Christ, that's you're, you're making them into a an idol, and that is a silly um, thought process because you know Christ picked the apostles and you know and he ordained them to make um, holy orders, not just to give us servants, but to give us examples of you know what servitude towards him looks like. Right. So let me break down. Let me break down what Paul is saying here. Okay, let me just ask you a question. How many times does the term "faith alone" appear in Scripture? Never. The only time, as actually mentioned in Scripture, is in the Book of James when it says we are not saved by faith alone. Right. The 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 only time, the one time that the term "faith alone" appears in Scripture is in a verse expressly stating that we are not saved by faith alone. How many times does the term once saved, always saved, appear in Scripture? Never. It doesn't say it um, neither directly or indirectly. It doesn't say right. it through teaching either. It doesn't say it with words, and it doesn't teach it either. Right. But let me ask you something. How many times does the word covenant appear in scripture it's all over the new testament and old testament too yeah over 400 times 400 times the word covenant appears in scripture because from abraham all the way through to john in the book of revelation covenant as lewis said is all over the bible because God's relationship with us has always been a covenantal relationship. Now, covenant means God has a part to play, but so do we. And we must do our part. And if we don't do our part, it's going to be a problem. Okay? So when Paul says, I fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Paul's part of the covenant. Jesus cannot do Paul's part of the covenant. That would be a violation of his justice. So Paul says, I suffer in my flesh and fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. This is right, again, an expressly Catholic teaching. Paul is saying that he suffers for the benefit of the church in doing his part of the covenant, which is uniting his sufferings to the sufferings of Christ. Now, Christ had a very more direct and more specific way of stating this, and we said it earlier tonight. If you will be my disciple, you must pick up your cross daily and follow me. All right. I mean, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are reviled and persecuted when people say all kinds of terrible things about you falsely because of me. 
rejoice. So the the true disciple of Jesus is mocked is mocked, ridiculed, beaten, discouraged, grief struck. That is the true disciple of Christ, the one who's carrying his cross through life, because through that cross we reunite we unite our sufferings to his sufferings. Does that sound anything like faith alone to you? No, it doesn't. And again, it goes it goes back to easy believism. These things that so many evangelical Christians believe in is something that they buy into because, well, it makes things simple. Not simple isn't the word. It just makes things convenient for them. They want all of the benefits of the kingdom of Christ. They want all of the benefits of the blood of Christ, but they don't want to put in any of the responsibilities to come with being a follower of Christ. They want um, all the glory, but none of the sacrifice, and that's disgusting. Right. Or as I like to put it, rather than having Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they want him as Savior only. They don't want the exactly, Lord part. Exactly, not Lord. Well, it's a package deal. He has to be Lord and Savior. So uh, notice none of them called in. I mean, they, you know, they claim they believe this. They had an opportunity to call in, give their side. We publicize this. Um, I, I don't and really very believe. And Catholic group, too. And we were respectful, too. I mean, like, um, we're not aggressive people. I mean, um, we don't make threats or anything. They have nothing to fear. But again, like, you know, they had no a desire to call in. And also it's different what they, you know, talking in voice than hiding behind a text wall where they can just avoid questions. You can't do that here. Yeah, that's that's the one thing that I've noticed when I debate uh, a lot of these people is I put them on defense. Make them defend their position. They're not comfortable defending their position. They're comfortable on the sidelines throwing rocks. Uh, throwing accusations, uh, 50 accusations against the Catholic Church and then run. Uh, but you won't see them defend that, their position. On top of they don't, they're, they don't, it's outside their nature to, um, their nature is simply to attack, not to defend themselves. And on top of that, um, a very powerful point is that um, most of the time you have to correct them on the accusations because they they attack us based on straw men. 99% of the time. They don't even attack us on things we actually believe, and this is true for almost everything. The Immaculate Conception, um, the papacy, the role of the Pope, uh, purgatory. Purgatory is a big one. I've I've literally have to, the very first thing I have to do when I'm debating one is to tell them that is not what we actually believe purgatory is. They think, for example, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a place where people that are, that are in between accepting Jesus or not go to, that it's a place that um, substitutes Jesus as a savior and they're already starting off as with the wrong mindset. Um, I have to tell them things like, well, purgatory is not a place for people that haven't made up their mind or are a substitute for Jesus. It's a place reserved only for those who have accepted Christ but have died retaining sin, and most of us do die retaining sin. Very few of us die without sin, even after we've been saved. And um, this is all over scripture. Even after salvation, the apostles struggled with sins. Even after salvation, 
pretty much everyone in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus and Mary. And Jesus was the Savior, and Mary, well, she received salvation at conception, but um, it shows you that most of us will die dirty. So it's just common sense, too. Um, sorry for kind of diverge, diverging a little bit, but uh, it just shows you that they, most Protestants out there have no desire to learn what actual Catholic teaching is. Well, then I, chose, then, then I chose why. They, they can't defend their own position. They can't defend the tenets of their own position, uh, of their own belief system. If they could, they would. They can't, so they don't. So on that note, I'm going to say that Sola Fide stands reputed tonight. And, uh, Lewis, I'll ask you to end the show with a closing prayer. If I can say just one more thing. If you look at all the churches before the Protestant Reformation, even the ones in schism from the Catholic Church, like the Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox, they would agree with us on this. It is. It, it was always considered a heresy to believe and the things that Protestantism was founded with. Some faith alone, um, scripture alone, um, grace alone. There, um, we all kind of rejected, we're not even kind, we all rejected Luther for that for a reason. So yes, um, I'm sorry about that. I just wanted to add that in. That this idea is, it was a heresy to everyone that, that has any historical literacy. Um Dear Jesus Christ, thank you for bringing me and my brother John here in this podcast. Thank you for making us your instruments and servants and defending the faith that you started, the Catholic faith. Please continue to use us as your tools in guiding people into understanding the faith that you started. Please give us the the charity to do it in a way that um, people will not be put on the, um, will not be stubborn or prideful. Please make us like how you made Mary, a perfect and submissive servant to you, always thinking about what pleases you and never what pleases us. I ask of this, Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Um, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us as they are daily bread and forgive us for our trespass as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he was not empty temptation, but there was from evil. Amen. amen. Christ has risen. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good night. And tomorrow we will be back here on the four persons. God bless everyone. God bless everyone.